Welcome to the Irish Baseball Podcast, brought to you by the Irish American Baseball Society. If you love Ireland and baseball, you're one of us. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Becker, and we have an interesting show for you today. First, I'll be joined by former Phillies scout and author of the book Baseball English, Phil Riccobono. As a scout in Japan, he was able to see the reigning American League MVP in action for years before he came over to the U.S. Later, John Fitzgerald will be here to discuss some past and present major leaguers who celebrate birthdays in February. John is the founder of the Irish American Baseball Society and the Baseball United Foundation. Let's get things started with Phil Riccobono. Thanks for joining us, Phil. Oh, Rick, it's a pleasure. It's great to finally hook up with you. So we have a lot to discuss over the course of this interview. I think the first place I want to start is the fact that you recently gave this up, but you were a scout for the Phillies for a decade. And I want to talk a lot about that because it is something that I think really interests me because I think it's a part of baseball that a lot of fans don't get to see very often. You know, we're the guys on the ground now with videos and things like that and YouTube and technology scouting has changed. A lot of teams are going towards video and people in the seats on the ground are going by the wayside which I disagree with because you have to know the players. You have to know their makeup, their background, know them from when they're very young if possible. But scouting is the backbone of baseball, in uh, my opinion. So much of scouting from a fan perspective seems to be finding that player that the team signs and going through all those players that you suggested to the organization and the organization signed them, drafted them, whatever. But I think what's even more important is the players that you convinced them not to sign or said, maybe this one isn't worth it. Would you agree on that? Oh, yeah. Um, somebody can look great on paper, uh, but then if you find out about their character or their motivation, um, then it's really not worth pursuing. Sal Agostinelli, who's the current um, director of international scouting from the Phillies and a longtime mentor of mine, he said, even before I started scouting with him, I talked to him about Yusei Kikuchi, who was in high school at the time. He just pitched for the Seattle Mariners. He's uh, a free agent now. He's in the all-star team this year, this past season. And he said, well, the first thing you got to find out is, does he want to go over? Does he want to leave Japan? If not, it's not worth looking at him. This was a stud in high school who pretty much every MLB team chasing him. But you have to find out what's the player's motivation, especially if you're going to pursue players from overseas. There are players like Hayato Sakamoto, who's been a perennial all-star and probably will go into the Hall of Fame as a Yamayori Giant, who could have played Major League Baseball. Now he's on the back end of his career, the downside of his career, but Five, six, ten years ago, this guy could have been a everyday uh, starting shortstop in Major League Baseball, but he didn't want to do it. He's a superstar in Japan. Some guys don't want to change their culture, don't want to adapt, don't want to learn a new language. They're a big, they're a big fish. They don't want to go to MLB and become a small fish in a big pond. So that's a big part of it in terms of, I, I think, in terms of international scouting in Asia. In the Dominican, it's different. There's no pro league there. There's not a lot of money there. Of course, they want to ascend to the major leagues. But in 
South Korea and Japan, there are some players that are making good money, set for life, and don't want to rock the boat. What would you say are some of the things that might surprise fans about international scouting as compared to scouting players in the United States? So when you're looking at some of these players, say, in Japan, what do you have to take into consideration as far as the play of the game that you wouldn't necessarily have to take into consideration in the United States? Or is a baseball player just a baseball player? No, that's a really good question. In Japan, in South Korea, let's start with pitching. Uh, the velocity is not there. So you can have a pitcher in Japan who throws a lot of junk and is hard to hit, but has a 90-mile-per-hour fastball that would get crushed in America. Uh, it just wouldn't work out. There's guys who've come over to the States. Uh, one player in particular, Makita, he pitched with the uh, – he's a, he's a right-handed pitcher who would – throw sidearm, just came over to MLB and got crushed. These guys in Japan, the hitters are not used to seeing high velocity, 95, 100. They have trouble with it, and it works also with the batters. A lot of hitters don't have the bat speed. They come over to MLB, and they struggle. One case in particular, and it's taken them a few years to adjust, is uh, Sutsugo, who's with the Pirates now. He started out with Tampa Bay, then he went to the Dodgers, and it's taken him a couple years to make the adjustments. Uh, his exit velocity is, I think, in kind of the lower end of MLB. And it was probably uh, okay for Japan. But let's see. He had turned it on the end of last year. This would be a real interesting test for him this year. So I think velocity is a big, big difference that people need to recognize. It's, it's fairly obvious. But if you come over to Japan and you're a Major League Baseball fan, you might be shocked to see that guys live off of off-speed pitches. They'll throw a first pitch curveball, a first pitch slider. Where in MLB, it's going to be a fastball every first pitch. That's a big difference is the velocity. So obviously putting together the timeline that you were a scout in Japan for 10 years, and I think the 300-pound elephant in the room is what did Shohei Otani look like when he was in Japan? Well, he looks pretty much the same. He was a little bit uh, less weight. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, no, he has put on uh, weight in the last year. He looks he looks like a beast. What he was in Japan is a generational player. This is what Japanese people will tell you. They've never seen anything like him. MLB has never seen anything like him since Babe Ruth. And Babe Ruth was not a two-way player for that long. Uh, I don't know the exact amount of years off the top of my head, but it wasn't too long. So we're seeing... Uh, not only a generational player in Japan, but an international generational player. Uh, a lot of people don't know his makeup is outstanding. He's a, he's a very humble guy. Uh, even the year or two before he came over to MLB, he would help the uh, clubhouse staff with lifting bags and putting them on buses and stuff like that. Just a very good guy, good character. I mean, if you want a perfect baseball player, that's him. In a lot of these international leagues, you do see former major and minor league players who will end up on a team. Does that help you evaluate the Japanese or Korean player when you see them playing against players who maybe are those quote-unquote 4A players? That's a great question, and my mentor, Sal Agostinelli, used that as a litmus test. He, Like, for example... Uh, you say Kikuchi, uh, we would watch him 
throw against a guy named Zealous Wheeler, who was a Yankees player and a 4A guy and has had a lot of success in Japan, and uh, dominate him, uh, dominate other 4A guys. So that is a benchmark. You're right about that. But some scouts, you know, will say, well, let's just look at his stuff. Let's give him a grade on his slider, give him a grade on his fastball. So some scouts will use that as a benchmark, and others will just look at the pure talent and statistics and things like that. So from a purely fan perspective, what are some of the differences in going to see these professional games in Japan as opposed to seeing them in the United States? What's the fandom like? What's the game day experience like? It's night and day. I mean, the last couple of years, you know, it has been abnormal because of the situation, the pandemic, but pre-pandemic, it's like going to a college football game or a college basketball game. You've got cheering sections, you've got flags, you've got horns, you've got drums, you've got the whole stadium singing in unison aside from the visiting cheering section. Songs for each player, little bats that are being uh, used uh, as noisemakers. It's just a real festive atmosphere. A lot of drinking, probably. I don't know if you can quantify the drinking there compared to MLB. I mean, I remember going back to an MLB game a few years ago. Maybe it was 2018 with my wife and family. Went to Philly's game. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I can't believe how quiet it is. This is so weird. And then, you know, the guys behind me started getting on the home team. They were The Phillies fans were getting on their own players. I'm like, I'm not used to that. There's no booing in Japan or Korea, South Korea, that I've seen for either side. They're very polite. They're very respectful to the players, um, and they just enjoy it, and they are going at it the whole game. doesn't matter if their team is up or down or what inning it is. It's just one big party or one big disco in Korea because they're, they're pumping that K-Rock, and they got cheerleaders on top of the dugouts dancing and a, and a head cheerleader. It's, it's insane, Rick. I hope you get to experience it when the situation improves. Is there a follow-up as a scout when one of these players goes from Asia to the United States where you have to make sure that the adjustment is going well, or is that completely taken out of your hands and that's up to the organization? Usually it's up to the organization, but if you take a look at you, Darvish, and Joe Furukawa, who is a scout for the, the Rangers – I believe he scouted him, and Joe is heavily embedded in Japanese baseball. That's why you see a lot of top-tier Japanese players going over to the Texas Rangers, and we talked about this before, building rapport. He's like a master at it, and he knows both sides. I think he was born in Japan but grew up in the States. He's been back and forth, has a foot in both countries. Uh, He did go over with Darvish and interpreted for him for several years and helped him with the adjustment. And if you look at my book, Baseball English, uh, we have a little write-up about that in there. That's one of the uh, the sections. So, yeah, but most cases, the player will stay in touch with the scout, especially if it's a, a Japanese scout. Uh, you know, that's like their entry to the team. And, and they're, believe it or not, money does talk, but Japan is all about relationships and building relationships. I believe players will go to a team that they know the scout because they, they, they have a relationship with the scout opposed to a team that maybe offers them more money and they don't know that team. 
It also has a lot to do with where the team's located. I mean, uh, let's face it, uh, if you're a Japanese player, you probably want to go play on the West Coast. There's more Japanese people there, uh, Japanese restaurants, supermarkets. It's a little more comfortable opposed to going to, say, Pittsburgh, where there's not really a Japanese population. But getting back to your original question, I think, and I think this is in, in line with that, a player wants to go where they feel comfortable, where they have relationships built. Um, that's important. And we are definitely going to get into your book, Baseball English. But before we do that, I just want to address one thing you mentioned a little earlier in the interview, and that is the move away from live scouts and relying more on video. As an academic to do doctoral work, uh, you either have to look at things quantitatively or qualitatively, meaning quantitative numbers, statistics, qualitative interviews, feedback from experts in the field. So I'm not against, I think video scouting is great. It gives you so much access to a player. If you're scouting a player in Japan, you could punch up uh, how they do against left-handed pitchers, right? If you're, if you're scouting a, a hitter, if you're scouting a pitcher, you can, you know, look at all their sliders in one shot for the whole season or the whole game. It's great. But that being said, you also need the human touch. You also need to talk to the player. You need to talk to their coaches. You need to be on the ground. You need to have a handle on that. I mean, you could go buy a car based on looks. Then you get in it, you bought it, and it drives like it's terrible drive. It just doesn't work for you. You've wasted your money. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars being invested in players here. So I believe in both. Unfortunately, this is case with Major League Baseball, not really in Japan from what I can see in, in NPB. Scouts are going to the wayside for video now. And pandemic has pushed it along even further where, well, what, we don't need scouts. They're not going to games. We could just rely on video. Scouts haven't gone to Japan uh, unless they're based there for two years now. And teams are uh, fine with that. Some teams are like, hey, we got video. We subscribe to a video service. We can see that. And I can see it where some teams may never or for the foreseeable future uh, not hire scouts again in Japan or Korea and just rely on video services, which I think is a mistake. When you see not necessarily Japanese or Korean players, but maybe an international player like what comes to mind for me is Yosmani Tomas, who was thought to be a no doubt major leaguer who was going to be playing for multiple years and you see that not work out the way it was projected as a scout do you think there's something you see in those situations do you think it's an acclimation issue or do you think that some of those players just were maybe fool's gold that what they were seeing wasn't going to translate to major league baseball so in that case you know, you don't get a lot of looks at Cuban players because they basically you get to see them in international competition and that's it. Maybe some friendlies or exhibitions they have in Canada, occasionally the U.S. So uh, that league is not as strong as it used to be. Cuban baseball is not what it used to be. Maybe some teams, you know, still are living off of that uh, mystique of Cuba when it was in its grandeur. Uh, say, 25, 30 years ago when they were winning the gold medal in the Olympics and things like that. Those players in Cuba don't have a lot of experience seeing MLB caliber play or players. That could be one thing. 
acclimations, another thing, like you mentioned, if you look at Kei Gawa, who pitched for the Yankees years ago, he kind of went into a depression. There's a whole New York Times article on it. And I talked to some people within the Yankees organization at the time. The guy just came to the States and just could not adapt. Uh, the language, he felt isolated. He didn't know the language well. He'd go into stores. He couldn't buy things. He, you know, he didn't, couldn't read the labels. So that's a big part of it. That's why my book, and I'm a big proponent of players who are interested, uh, even people interested in working in baseball, really need to learn the technical language vocabulary, at very least, of baseball English, because it's, um, it's very unique. It's very niche. There's also a lot of slang involved that you would normally not hear even in general English outside of baseball. For example, uh, eyewash, you know, which is like false hustle, like somebody who's putting on a show, running down to first base real hard when it's unnecessary. Things like that want to give you the appearance that they're working hard, but they're not. Now, the normal native English speaker wouldn't know what that meant unless they were in baseball. So, yeah, acclimation is important. With acclimation comes language. And I feel that in the Dominican, they are teaching general English, which is a step in the right direction in the academies in the Dominican, MLB academies. But I believe they also need to introduce more baseball English and not just based on intuition, based on data or corpus linguistics, if you will, which is quantitative, which basically you're building a body of texts, hundreds of texts, speaking baseball English on the field in the clubhouse, practices, etc. And you're taking that text and you're analyzing it for frequency, words that are high frequency words and even low frequency words compared to general English and introducing that. So I know that's a long-winded answer, but in order to acclimate, I believe you need to learn the language and the culture first and foremost. And that can translate into more success as a player. That was Phil Riccobono, former Philly scout and author of the book Baseball English. In episode 29, I'll continue my conversation with Phil. We'll discuss baseball English and go more in-depth into scouting. Right now, John Fitzgerald, founder of the Irish American Baseball Society and Baseball United Foundation, is back on the show. Hey, Rick. So it's time to go over the February birthdays. What do we have here, man? February 8th, we've got a, a double feature. We've got uh, two Ryans in the American League, two um, Irish American Leaguers, I guess. Uh, we've got Ryan Mountcastle of the Orioles and Ryan O'Hearn. And just looking at it now, Ryan Mountcastle, uh, his Irish roots go back to uh, Donegal in um, 1769. Uh, so that was his five, five times great-grandfather. Um, and then uh, O'Hearn, Ryan O'Hearn's roots go back to County Cork and County Limerick in the early 1800s. And then moving on from there, we've got uh, Bill Farmer. A major leaguer. I don't think he he did too much of of import on the uh, on the baseball field. Then we've got Hall of Famer Billy Hamilton on February sixteenth. Uh, Billy Hamilton uh, proclaimed himself uh, the greatest base stealer of all time. He did steal about nine hundred bases, nine hundred and twelve to be exact. But uh, there was a some something of a rule difference. I'm going to dive a little bit deeper on that after the show and and uh, get to the bottom of that. But that was his big claim to fame. Uh, he was a base stealer. I think it's kind of funny at one point in his career, he claimed to be the greatest base stealer of all time. And now we know he's only the second fastest Billy Hamilton. (laughs) 
Unfortunately for him, that's absolutely true. <laughs> um, then we got uh, February 19th, uh, John Morrill. And then February 22nd, we've got another Hall of Famer, Sparky Anderson was born on February 22nd. And um, so his Irish roots go back to County Clare. It's uh, his eight times great grandfather was the gatekeeper of Ennis Castle in Clare, uh, Sir John McDaniel. And his, uh, his mother, I believe, was also from County Clare. And um, they both came over to the U.S. and um, I believe they passed away in Virginia in the early 1700s. So his roots went way, way back. And, you know, obviously he's a Hall of Famer. And then um, February 24th, we've got Con Lucid, who was a uh, major league uh, pitcher, later a coach. He was actually born in Ireland, uh, in Dublin, in fact. I think his, his lifetime record was 23 and 23. His ERA was over six. So, you know, he wasn't the greatest pitcher, but um, he was born in Dublin, uh, one of a, a select handful of uh, players. And uh, February 25th was actually Paul O'Neill. Um, of the Reds and the Yankees. So talking about Paul O'Neill, I wanted to go back and mention that I think Paul O'Neill is probably a much better player than a lot of people realize. His career with the Reds, he definitely sort of underperformed. But man, 1993 comes over to the Yankees, hits 311, 871 OPS. And then the next year was the year that he was flirting with 400 a little bit at the beginning of the season, but ended up winning a batting title hit 359 and then once those big big Yankees teams came up in 96 97 and those late 90s Yankees clubs that was the first time he hit 100 RBI and he did it for four straight seasons just a sneaky good baseball player as a Mets fan I got to see him uh, firsthand with the Reds and then uh, up close with the Yankees uh, you know when it seemed like the Mets couldn't win a game and the Yankees you know, never lost. So he was a solid ball player, definitely a big piece of those championship teams. And I think maybe if at the beginning of his career, his numbers were just a little better, he could have snuck into that Hall of Fame conversation, but it really wasn't until he got to the Yankees a little later in his career that he really turned it on. But man, he was great there. Yeah, absolutely. John, thanks so much for being back on the show. Once a month, it's always great to just sort of look back at the Irish heritage of some Major League Baseball players, some who have made huge impacts and some who maybe just had a cup of coffee, but it's really interesting to delve into these players. Thanks for having me, Rick. Look forward to next month. This has been Episode 28 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. Make sure to catch Episode 29 when I'll finish my conversation with former Philly scout and author of the book Baseball English, Phil Riccobono. John Fitzgerald will also be returning for some details on what's happening at the Irish American Baseball Society and the Baseball United Foundation. I'm Rick Becker, and this is the Irish Baseball Podcast. You've been listening to the Irish Baseball Podcast. The Irish Baseball Podcast is a production of the Irish American Baseball Society. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org. And remember, there's no place like home.